what can we do in an innovative, creative, engaging way to break through the clutter and differentiate ourselves? Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 29, and today's guest is Lucille DeHart. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lucille DeHart. Lucille is a dynamic and results-oriented marketing leader with extensive experience driving business and creating and evolving brands. Lucille held senior-level marketing positions at Ralph Lauren, Toomey, TriStar Products, and Maidenform. Most recently, she was the Director of CRM, Integrated Marketing and Marketing Strategy, at Bed Bath & Beyond, and currently serves as an advisor for Bodasai, Body Science Technology, and an ongoing contributor to SharpHeels.com. Lucille, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. I, I was actually getting a little podcast envy because I saw a lot of my friends were on your show, so... I figured eventually you'd get to me. <laughs> well, and not eventually, you know, just, you know, got to gotta work through and see who we can find and who wants to tell their story. And, and I'm glad that you agreed to do so. Um, so again, thanks for joining me. You know, we're recording here uh, at the end of January of, of 2021. How are you and your family doing uh, as we continue in what seems to be the never ending pandemic? Luckily, knock on wood, everyone's healthy. I have uh, aging parents and in-laws, and they're starting to get their vaccines. So um, we do see some light at the end of the tunnel. But I got to tell you, it's uh, the winter doldrums, uh, the retail industry, and COVID has not been my favorite cocktail. <laughs> I, I hear you, that's for sure. Uh, let's start with uh, something that I do for each of the shows, getting your first story getting some perspective for the audience, you know, where you grew up, uh, family, siblings, you know, one of the things that, you know, I have seen very consistently in, in the 29 shows that I've done, it's so interesting how that first story does very often uh, give uh, some perspective of what people will end up doing in their career. So let, let's hear about your first story. Yeah, sure. Um, it was funny when you had said that, I really didn't think that there was such a correlation, but uh, my God, there was a direct correlation. So I guess I should have looked into the magic eight ball when I was much, much younger. Um, I'm a native Long Islander. So if you hear the heavy G's and the dropped R's, that's um, really not by choice. <laughs> and I had a very Wonder Years upbringing. So anybody who's seen the uh, TV show Wonder Years, it was, you know, a lot of ranches, a lot of developments, a lot of community houses, uh, or your neighborhood was really your family and the kids would go out during the day and basically come out when, you know, the parents would yell for them for dinner uh, and everyone could have scamper home. So I was also very fortunate to have the majority of my immediate and extended family within an hour drive between Brooklyn and, uh, and, and the East end of Long Island. So um, it was a very protected communal uh, family and very lovable upbringing. Uh, some of the things in the earlier memories was the fact that it was very close to the city. So there was still a lot of bit of culture and exposure to 
Manhattan, but it was also very commutable to every beach. I was definitely a, a mall rat. So I grew up in, living in malls, you know, with my friends, eating in food courts and hanging out there and, and pretty much going to all the mall events and activities like concerts and celebrity meet and greets. So um, that's a little bit of foreshadowing into my career in shopping centers. Um, so I know we had referenced that my beginnings in the retail industry really started at Liz, but my career path started in malls and, and shopping center development. So when I had gone um, to college, it was really more focused around communications, advertising, and marketing. When I graduated and I saw that there was a real legitimate career path uh, working in malls and not necessarily in stores, I jumped at the chance. So my very first job, a career job, was with Westfield International. And that's a shopping center developer. Now they're probably one of the three largest, but at the time they were an Australian-based company just starting in the U.S. And I was able to do everything within the marketing realm. So everything from, you know, running events to, you know, community events to buying and managing the media to writing and designing the advertising, uh, everything from the ABC fun fairs to uh, the Tiffany and Debbie Gibson concerts. I mean, it was really a great entrance into all aspects of the five P's pretty much. So it's interesting how that foreshadowing of shopping centers and growing up on Long Island and being exposed to that led me into the retail and, um, and brand industry. That's uh, really interesting. Thanks for setting that up for us. You know, I, I will ask, since you, you brought up this whole thing about, you know, the malls and, and shopping centers, you've played in this space for so long. What, what are the future? What is the future uh, of malls and, and shopping centers as we've known them today? Yeah, I, well, we've known for many years that the U.S. was over malled, where um, the square footage per capita was by far um, the largest in any country uh, in the world. That said, we've already started to see a metamorphosis where you start to see supermarkets and more commodity destinations taking over a lot of the real estate. I wish I knew. Um, if you asked me this maybe three years ago, I would probably have a much different answer. Um, I used to think the future of shopping malls was more lifestyle communities where there would be um, sort of this remote urbanization where people would move out of the cities but almost want a city-like atmosphere. And you would see a lot of the developers start to do this where they have centers that had banks and movie theaters and restaurants and apartment complexes. And they were really utilizing the real estate to almost build these little potter builds. And I really thought that might've been the future. And you know, with COVID and the pressure on brands and retailers to rethink their brick and mortar strategy, uh, we might still see a component of that, but there is an awful lot of square footage still out there. Um, there was really a, a drive most recently into more of the the WeWork space where uh, centers started to recalibrate and become more of office complexes versus retail complexes. But now with COVID and the work from home, there's a lot less demand in that space. And I think we probably haven't even seen the commercial real estate impact until this coming year. So um, I wish I had a crystal ball on this one to tell you I know exactly the path of shopping centers. I can say that they've reiterated for um, probably close to 60, 70 years now. So there will be an afterlife. Um, my guess is that it will somehow morph back into um, sort of this hybrid lifestyle, mini community areas. Got it. So let's tee up. So you went to school in uh, the New York area? Yes, I went to New, Jer in New Jersey, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University in the Madison campus. Um, and I thought I was going to go into communications, journalism, and, and more of the creative side of advertising. 
And the more uh, courses I had taken on the advertising front, the more engaged I became on the business side of the advertising, what was driving the campaigns, what was the logic and or objectives from a business standpoint, which led me more down the marketing side. But I kind of piecemealed my degree. Um, it definitely was more on the, the art side when I started in the business and sort of the commerce science side I evolved throughout my career. So, you know, you, you talked to you about yourself as a marketer. What kind of marketer would you describe yourself as? Yeah, I've, I've always said that I was an innovative ROI-driven uh, marketer, um, which is, you know, a very flattering way of saying that I'm in that unique realm. And I've had some, I heard some of your other guests also say this, so I guess you attract these kind of people where I do have a balance of the art and commerce, right? Some people come up through the data science side. Some people come up through the creative side. Eventually, you morph and find um, middle ground for the people that really are scalable, that can get to the next level and understand how to manage both, both aspects of marketing. Um, so I, I've always prided myself on really leveraging creativity for innovation, but innovation that's not just cool, innovation that's driving results, um, that you're really taking an old idea and morphing it into a new industry or presenting it in a way that's driving incrementality other than just for the sake of doing it. And, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but there's you know a whole bunch of examples I can give you on where there's been some really cool things that we've done, but it was never coming from the lens of let's do this, it's cool. We would say, we need to do X, Y, and Z to address the situation. What can we do in an innovative, creative, engaging way to break through the clutter and differentiate ourselves? Um, so I'll give you a, a really high level example here around most recently at Bed Bath & Beyond, I was an, an audience business owner is what we called it within the marketing life stages group. And I owned all the customers when I say owned, um, I owned all aspects of managing the business marketing online offline experience for college students or families engaging with the college experience and also for the mover audience, which was by far the largest. There's over 24 million households that move on an annual basis and their spend is very disproportionate to the annual customer. So recognizing them during that hyperspend period was pretty critical. Um, at Bed Bath & Beyond, we had a huge database. So it wasn't for lack of understanding, you know, we need more customers. It was understanding of the customers we had who were actually engaged in a move cycle. And most importantly, we were saturated with that 40, 45 year old, uh, which are really moving into that second expansion home and or moving for jobs or careers or for other catalysts for uh, when you do move. The void in the marketing mix had been under the younger customers because the brand itself was not attracting that under 35 customer as much as it had the iconic legacy customer that had grown up with the brand. So attracting first time and second time movers, um, whether they're moving into their first apartment or their first house was really a challenge for us because we weren't doing as you know, aggressive uh, broad scope advertising. Uh, the younger customer wasn't naturally coming to Bed Bath & Beyond, which was an easier way for us to identify movers, just match them back to NCOA and third-party data. So what we did is we created this partnership with Updater, which was a startup app that helped people update their utilities and services and ultimately scaled to probably close to 16 million movers. Uh, and most of them, around 90% were first-time movers. Through that partnership, we were able to be the first retail partner on their platform. So in addition to changing your, you know, your cable, updating your phones, uh, you know, changing some of your, you know, your other utility services, you could also engage with Bed Bath & Beyond as the only retail provider for a lot of your uh, moving needs. And we kind of evolved the relationship from there. 
Um, it was clever because uh, we embarked and had exposure on an app that was very new and upcoming and very successful. But it was also uh, very beneficial to us because 50% of the people we engaged with on that app were new to our database. So this program became a huge youthful acquisition tool for Bed Bath & Beyond. And the ROI was tenfold. Um, so we saw tremendous returns on converting this younger new customer to engage with the brand and spend and move them into sort of our life cycle. So again, that's that was an innovative idea that wasn't just born from us saying, hey, we should be exposed to more apps or let's do some cool things. It was more identifying what's the void and or what, what's the white space? What could we do differently or better? Um, and how do we implement that so it's feeding into the bigger marketing plan? We've also been very innovative across a lot of my other companies that will give you a really great example of you know, how creativity and innovation leads to success and business ROI. We were once some of the first companies to engage in QR codes, uh, but really leveraging more for virtual and augmented reality. So on Made Inform, uh, we were the first brand to use uh, augmented reality codes on our hang tags. So you can engage in wholesale environments, but get uh, more of a virtual experience of the brand and the fit and sort of the uh, attributes of the product. It was a very early adapter stage. So you were only as good as people actually downloaded the apps or understood what augmented reality was, but it definitely was a catalyst for us to embark in more aggressive digital programs, which as um, a wholesale brand was not something that we set out to do. And through that idea and some of the other ideas, the platforms just started to evolve. Um, we were also the first partner for Elle Magazine when they had their digital uh, app platform for the magazine. So we did things very mindfully and intentionally, but in some pretty cool programs. Well, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so I, just for our listeners, uh, I met Lucille. Uh, she mentioned Maidenform. Uh, I met her there. I think guess it's about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, she was running marketing for the business. And I came in to, to do some work for them on the e-commerce business that they had. Uh, I don't know if it was you had just launched, but um, I know it was just going up on uh, IBM WebSphere. Uh, I thought that was uh, just an interesting business that you were running there and uh, great brand recognition. Um, you know, w- one of the things that's always interesting to me for, for folks that run marketing for wholesale businesses, so much of what you are reliant on uh, to tell your story is not only the marketing that you're doing, but the the way the the different retailers tell your story in their particular stores. As the the head marketer, how do you control that message when you have so many different businesses that are selling your product? Yeah, you know that's never an easy uh, path to take, and I think uh, we're seeing a lot of brands wrestle with that on the marketplace model as well. When they have Amazon stores, or now they're engaging with Walmart, Target's platforms, and ultimately the Google one that's coming up as well. You really have to rely on many environments. Um, I can tell you, you know, Made Inform was at the time probably ninety percent, um, as was Toomey wholesale based versus being um, digitally or web driven. And I would say most brands during that era were predominantly. Um, wholesale were brick and mortar based and the web was a very small fraction of, of the business model. But to, to break through the clutter and kind of define the space, uh, a lot of these brands use shop in shops or store in stores where they actually own the, the real estate and have their own staff on board. And a lot of uh, the burden of the brand came through the collateral, whether that was point of sale signage or the uh, product collateral and packaging had to really carry a lot of the weight of communicating the brand story. 
Um, and that's why in some of the earlier technology and digital uh, innovations, seeing the way that you can engage directly with the customer through the product, whether that was QR codes or virtual or augmented reality, um, a lot of the, um, the new uh, touch fixturing and things that could engage with customers post-purchase, I think that's what really started to ignite a lot of the wholesale traditional brands to see how they could get to the customer directly versus going through another organization or entity. You know, the, the websites and the emergence of that now being probably, you know, 20, 30, and in some industries or segments, 60 or 70% of their business, um, you're seeing a lot more of the, the website carry the burden of defining the brand so that when you are in these wholesale environments or second party retailers, people already know you, they know what you stand for and they know the story. So it takes a lot of that pressure off of it. Uh, but I would say predominantly it was more about creating the environment. In the early days, we also used owned staff. We would have field employees that would service customers, fit customers, host events. Um, they would make sure that the uh, fixtures was, were stocked. They would make sure that they were there to train the other sales associates. And as wholesale sort of declined, a lot of those services and extended staff were cut and you had to rely on just regular part-time store employees to really communicate your brand. That was less than ideal. And, and obviously it was, you know, part of the catalyst for brands kind of taking ownership back of their product and name. In, in the roles that you have had over time, from a digital e-commerce perspective, have you had marketing of digital commerce report up through you or has have your roles been more bifurcated where you're handling more of the, the branding um, kind of, of things that are maybe less digital and were there others that were responsible for digital? Um, I'm going to say both um, depending on um, the timing and or the company, right? So digital, at least in my career path, reported anywhere from the chief operating officer to the um, retail organization, and ultimately we saw the shift going more into marketing, which is really where I see it belong. I, I've also seen it under the, the the customer service side, where they felt that they own the entire engagement with the customer. Um, I think that's probably the least effective, considering the call centers and the the customer service tools don't really um, blend well with the web platforms. But with the emergence of chat and some of these uh, virtual associates and virtual services it might make more sense today. So yes, I've touched digital on a variety of different uh, parts of my career and owned aspects of it. It wasn't clearly in more wholesale uh, in those environments when we were just starting with websites like at Maidenform or at, probably was at Maidenform twice, but pretty much in the early days of Toomey even, that was a very small fraction. It was used mostly as a branding and product tool. Uh, there wasn't a lot of energy. So my oversight on that was much more around customer acquisition, the email marketing, the CRM programs, um, the homepage and creative, um, not so much around the optimization um, and merchandising of the site. It was almost a secondary channel for us where I really got much more engaged in sort of database and customer direct um, was at Ralph Lauren. And then certainly most recently at Bed Bath & Beyond in my roles at TriStar where uh, the web channel was a direct extension of communicating and selling to the customers as an omni-platform. What kind of business is TriStar? Yeah, so TriStar uh, was a really interesting business model. It was predominantly in, and started as an as-seen-on-TV company. Uh, and that really meant that it was a master at direct response marketing, uh, utilizing television to really sell a product, just like the old street vendors when they would do product demonstrations and tell you everything that this product can possibly do 
and how you can't live without it, almost like that snake oil salesman in a way. Sadly, they've kept a lot of that reputation of the snake oil salesman, but um, the products, the technology, and what they've been able to deliver to customers has really escalated through the years. When I joined TriStar, it was really at the cusp of recognizing that this, this business model was generating significant brands and not just these one-off products. So brands like the Genie Bra, which was the number one bra in the country for, gosh, it had to be over 24 months, which was enormous. And, you know, Copperware, which is copper-infused compression garments. Uh, we launched a whole lifestyle brand around uh, Sarah Ferguson for Duchess Discoveries. Uh, we relaunched the Jacqueline Juice, which I have some you know, great innovative stories around that as well. Um, so I was brought on board to identify what these products into brands were and kind of scale them so that there was more longevity. The average lifespan of a DRTV product is probably around 18 months where, you know, you get some traction, they do a lot of A, B, and testing. Um, they find out what the correct price point is, what the right media mix is, and then ultimately they scale it, blow it out, and normally it would go away. But transitioning that product to retail, given all of the television demand, became very profitable second life for these products. But they needed to be merchandised. They needed to be managed. All of a sudden, there was a lot of customer information available so that you can continue to maintain the brand longevity. So in that role, I played a very critical part in not only optimizing the user experience, but developing content on the websites, partnering and managing with the wholesale partners for a point of sale presentation, and really developing um, an entire brand strategy for each of these products that got to a very scalable size. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Let's talk about culture for a second. You know, when I when I was doing my review of the different businesses, uh, my perception, and obviously sometimes uh, perceptions could be wrong. You you have had a wide array of different businesses, and it feels like the cultures may have been pretty different in in these businesses. We don't need to you know harp on any particular one and their good or bad culture, but talk about the culture, how you've been able to adapt yourself maybe a little bit your personality, how you interact with the people based upon the culture that's, that precedes you when you get to this business? Yes, I have worked for quite a diverse group of brands and cultural environments that are very vastly different. Um, so I would say the epitome of culture was at Ralph Lauren. Luckily, I had a personal aesthetic for that brand. So it wasn't too much of a challenge. My, my aesthetics, my taste, my wardrobe was uh, very equestrian and sort of traditional in, in many aspects. But even then, I didn't quite get it right. There was a whole vernacular at Ralph Lauren. You know, when you think of culture, it's not just environment. It's um, how people carry themselves, the language, um, how meetings are run, what's acceptable and not acceptable, sort of those hidden rules that you don't know until you either break them or someone tells you. So um, there was a, quite a bit of a learning curve at Ralph Lauren. Um, luckily for me, I had a counterpart. I was in the retail segment and I had a counterpart who was in the wholesale segment that we started on the same day. 
And we would often just send these emails to each other with question marks saying, what's a pre-pre-meet and how do I prepare for that? Um, because there were degrees away from Ralph or David. And if you had a Ralph meeting, you didn't just have a pre-meet to the Ralph meeting, you had a pre-pre-meet so that you could prepare for the pre-meet and you know, so on and so forth. So there was different uh, rules around how do you engage with those key designers and influencers. The visual aesthetics in that in that company were very um, very defined. I mean, the second you walked into the offices, it was mahogany walls and leather couches and you know magnificent staircases and the hunter greens and navy blues. And I do remember the time, and it, it was earlier in because it didn't take me that long to figure it out. Thank God. I showed up. I had jeans. I had black heels on. I had a pink pony T-shirt and a black pinstripe blazer. And my group president looked at me and she just did that what we call a rig check, which is where you look from you know feet to head back down to feet. And she said, "Well, you're looking very Ralph Lauren today," which in my mind was like, "I finally arrived. I gotta make sure I keep looking like this." Um, so there was there was the easier aspect of adapting that way, and then the harder aspect knowing the hidden influencers and, and language. Other cultures were very different. Like Toomey um, is a luxury lifestyle brand going through transformation, didn't really get through transformation. They ultimately recently got purchased by Samsonite. Um, huge brand followers, but very old school legacy employees, very old school legacy corporate environment and culture. So it's really hard to define a luxury lifestyle travel brand when you have people that probably are not purchasing the product. They'll use it because they got them for free. They still have very old school sales um, techniques, um, very garmento, if you will. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a, a, a time-defined way. So that was a, a very different environment. It, it's pretty cut and dry that way. And, and another funny story was at Main Inform, um, it was a very male-dominated field, even though it was women's intimate apparel, uh, which was sort of my first recollection of being in a meeting. Uh, and it did take me a little bit to, to acclimate to actual women walking around the office in thongs and bras because it was very commonplace for fittings and just showing product to the sales team. So it, it took me a while to make eye contact there. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had a similar uh, experience. I, I worked at Warnico, uh, and this is right before I, I met you. And, and we obviously had the license for Calvin Klein underwear. And I remember going there, you know, kind of my first few months and it was a, a Calvin underwear fashion show and I'm sitting there and, you know, the young lady is walking up and down, you know, the, uh, the aisle and she's wearing, you know, a, a bra and panties and, you know, it's like, okay, now I have to be professional, you know, about this. Um, so yeah, I had, I had that similar, uh, uh, similar experience. So it, just in, in going back on the, on the culture, did you find that it was difficult for you? We, we, we all have our certain own in, internal culture. Was it hard for you to morph from one to the other, or you just kind of figure it out? It wasn't so difficult. You just have to be mindful. Um, and maybe early in my career, I was, I was naive. Um, I was my, showed up as myself everywhere I went. Uh, and it wasn't until sort of the midpoint of my career that I realized I might have to present myself differently to be effective. I enjoyed understanding the cultures, but it's definitely a mindset. It's not just what you wear. It's what you say. We used to joke that, you know, people were very polite at polo. They called it polo politeness. So I'm a little bit more scrappy and outspoken and direct. That probably wasn't the best for the culture, although I became very endearing to everyone because that's who I was and that's how I showed up. In other organizations, if you weren't like a TriStar, it was 
very effective to be direct and outspoken and not be as polished or polite in meetings because it was a very dynamic, entertainment-oriented environment, very media-driven. So, you know, learning what tools and how to apply yourself in different situations was it easy or hard? I would just say it's, it's, anyone could do it. You just have to be mindful. Uh, the biggest learning for me is to understand who are the hidden influencers and decision makers. Uh, and I think that's part of any kind of career training. Uh, and people don't always tell you that when you go through business classes or business school or even earlier in your career, even mentors, for them to really say, I know you're presenting to this person, but you're really looking to get that person on board because they're going to be the ones that chirp in the ears outside the meeting. So that whole meeting outside the meeting for me was a massive learning curve. Um, again, because whether I was naive or just the fact that I, I wear, you know, my ideas and my opinions on my sleeve um, because I'm a very transparent partner, that took a little bit for me to truly understand. But again, it, it's just a matter of if you can understand and assess um, before you uh, sign up for a part in the play, you'll be far better off to know how to be effective in different cultures and environments. A lot's changed in in measurement of uh, media spend and how we uh, mix the dollars, you know, from one uh, tactic to another. Um, you know, you've been you know at this for for quite a while. You've seen the the insurgence of digital come into play. How do you think about as a marketer where I'm going to spend my dollars, and and then in addition to that, you know, where do I spend the next dollar? How do I figure out um, and change? You know, we I, I've I've done a bunch of speaking, and you know, we we kid around about the A word attribution, and nobody ever wants to talk about it. So we kind of leave it to the last question. But as a marketer, how are you thinking about? All that. Yeah, I wrote a blog a while ago uh, on how I missed the old days of billboards and four network TV stations with the emergence of just, you know, cable and content and the, the digital platforms relatively new in this space. It's just, you know, as consumers started to uh, move away from downtowns and urban communities and even, you know, through the days of shopping centers, how you engage with them, you know, really shifted to database and direct mail, um, ultimately the web, you know, webs and digital platforms. And now it's just expanding exponentially to the point of over confusion. Where to spend or the type of measurements? Because it's, you know, I, get asked, I got asked this question uh, somewhat recently on a panel and uh, they said, well, what would your ideal marketing mix be or where would you spend your media dollars? And I just point blank said, well, it depends on what your business objective is. You know, you can't just say this is the most effective media or if you gave me a million dollars, here's how I'd spend it. I would really have to identify what is your primary business and or marketing objective. And hopefully they're the same thing or very parallel to one another. If it's truly brand awareness um, and top of funnel, where you see value may be a little bit less financially quantifiable and may be more impression-based or view-based. If you're really looking for conversion, then really investing on your own web platforms or in your store environment to enhance that experience and build engagement at a different level is probably your better spend. If you're looking for, you know, retargeting as far as retargeting and, you know, gaining frequency or increasing UPTs or uh, building acquisition through lookalike models, then I would probably say your digital channels, your social platforms, and even these new connected TV and, and streaming, um, streaming media could be new opportunities to reach those audience segments based on attribution, on, on attribute models. Um, as far as attribution, that's probably the hardest thing a marketer has to do. Identifying the media plan um, is something that is 
very digestible, right? You say, okay, I want to do X, Y, and Z. You identify where are those people? Uh, what's the best way to reach them? What's going to deliver that business or marketing goal? And then how are you defining what success looks like? Um, one of the keys is to find that up front because as marketers, we can make anything look successful. And I have, uh, it doesn't mean that it was, or I should have, but really understanding how you're going to monetize it and what that, uh, what attribution model you should use um, is the trickiest part. So I, you know, last I heard there were probably like eight different types of attribution models. First, last click, um, Google clicks, um, developing your own proprietary attribution model. I don't have the magic wand and formula for that. I think it's my best advice for attribution is to follow customers via customer journeys and not define attribution by media source because you may find that an email is exceptionally beneficial for existing customers in driving the return and giving you a high ROS. If you're really looking for lookalikes, you may find that you know display marketing and third-party partnerships could be highly successful for you. So I really look at the customer and audience segment first, what media channel is most effective to reach them, and then measure those channels and attribute their performance to that. Yeah, none of us have the answer. That's that's for sure. No. <laughs> but we certainly could talk about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it gets a lot of play. That's for sure. You, you know, you you talked before about uh, you know innovation and all. We mentioned Bodasai. Uh, what what kind of business is that? Yeah, so Bodasai is body data science. Um, I've known uh, Cricket Lee, who's the founder and entrepreneur. Um, she developed the concept of the little black pant years ago and was one of the first players in the digitally native space using social media and those platforms to launch and sell brands. And she's through the years redesigned and redeveloped the new fit standards. Uh, most people don't know that a woman's fit size, two, four, eight, 10, 12, was based on sort of mid-century military women's body forms. And they were really around, you know, chest, uh, waist, and hips. And then pattern makers would just take that core size and scale it up or down. But it didn't take into accountability shape, you know, pear size, apple size, genetics, um, different types of racial diversity that affect body shape. And Cricket has done thousands and thousands of fits and standards and interviews and has come up with a proprietary technology that can be applied on any retailer website. And it minimizes returns by over 70%. And being in retail, you know, that's probably the greatest waste of, of revenue is the lost income from things you've sold that come back to you. And a lot of times in apparel, it's because it's the wrong fit. And most of the fit issues are because every designer and every retailer uses their own design standard based against that scalable, you know, 1950s model of two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, et cetera. So she now has this um, software as a service logic, body data science, that allows for that technology to be applied to any digital website or even retail website with now, you know, buy online, pick up at store or pick up at curbside that reduces, um, reduces returns, but more importantly, guarantees a really great fit across brands and, and across product lines, which is pretty innovative. So it's, it's in its earlier stages. Um, we're currently looking at some crowdsourcing to, uh, there was my Long Island, if you pick that up. Sourcing, sourcing, I got it. Yes. I, 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 you know, I, I'm a Brooklyn guy. And as soon as it came out, I'm like, there it is. I, it comes it took... out when I talk a, a bit, it'll, it'll come out more. <laughs> you, you should almost have like a game show or a quiz. Identify the Gs, the Rs and the Ss. <laughs> we'll give them a prize, Mark. How's that? 
Um, so she's she's really ahead of the curve. I mean, obviously, um, getting this technology adopted by retailers is quite a hurdle. So she's going to go the uh, direct route herself. So similar to what she did with the Little Black Pant, launching a, a unique proprietary line based on this FIT standard, and then do the proof concept and then carry that into other. It's an easy sell once they understand the logic. She's been at this. Um, she had another business where I, I met her. Was it Fit Logic? Was that what yep, it was called? Fit Logic. Um, she parted ways with those partners, but a lot of the concepts, the technology, and the development was hers. Um, they hit some limitations on where they were going to take that business model, and she's evolved it and made it more modern. Um, so she's reinventing that whole business concept. But yes, that's that's her. She's been at this a while, and um, I think the timing, more than anything, is is quite perfect, uh, particularly because so many people are shopping more online. Um, For sure. and even though there's no resistance to doing that, the return rate really hasn't changed. Yeah, she's interesting. I've, I've talked to her quite a bit over the years, um, you know, while she was trying to pile through that, uh, you know, that previous incarnation. So uh, she's, she's clearly got, a, you know, some good ideas here. So that's, that's great. So um, just last quick question, uh, before I get into uh, our two minute drill here, talk about mistakes that you've made and, and lesser about the mistake and more about how you deal with them. You know, how do you deal with the mistake that you have to take ownership of and, and perhaps, you know, how somebody on your team may have made a mistake? What, what do you you take away from those? I don't really make mistakes, Mark. So um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, the only way I've learned is quite, but I always tell people, they're like, what would you, you know, what advice would you give? I'm like, well, don't do these things because I've done them and clearly that didn't work. I haven't made too many technical mistakes because I feel like you can almost avoid that. But when I have, um, they haven't been devastating. I would say the first step is, you know, hey, don't panic. You know, identify what the mistake was identify the scope and the impact on the business, right? Because there are big mistakes and there's little mistakes. There's mistakes that catalyst into, you know, reoccurring into other areas that impact more people. Um, so I would just say, do, do a quick due diligence on what exactly, you know, situation you're dealing with. The second thing I would say is come up with resolutions. Um, there's nothing worse than somebody that says, I made a mistake, but doesn't know how to solve it because you're putting that burden on your partners, your colleagues, your boss, your staff, so basically assess the, assess the situation, come up with some kind of resolution on what you think could fix it, either short-term or long-term, and then take accountability uh, and make sure that you communicate to all of the potential impacted partners and say, hey, this happened, um, this is what I think we could do to fix it or address it and prevent it from happening or the likelihood from it happening again, and then just take charge of, of spearheading that change. And I think you tend to gain more respect because everyone knows people have missteps and and do things wrong. What's infuriating is when they point fingers or don't own it or don't try to fix it. Um, when they try to hide in the corner, that's that's probably the worst thing you could do. Yeah, totally agree. Well, we're down to the uh, end of the show where we do our two-minute drill. I've got seven questions that I'd like to ask you. One or two word answers. First things that come into your mind. Ready? You ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Uh, I'm wearing it. Warby Parker. I am in love with this eyeglass brand. Um, from the concept of them doing, you know, at-home try-ins, try-ons to their new virtual app where you can try it on their try-on glasses, which is perfect for the COVID time. I just think they have made a commodity into a fast fashion statement, and I love it. That's great. Favorite app on your phone? Boxed. Um, it's, uh, it's bulk selling at a value price. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? 
yeah, it's going to be boxed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Boxes, box wins. Okay. <laughs> Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Um, singing. I always wanted to sing well, if not for me, for everyone around me. <laughs> Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Uh, Summit Animal Rescue. I'm a huge animal enthusiast. So really anything related to um, animal rescue and, and aid. Okay. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Yeah, I actually did a little homework on this question, Mark, because <laughs> I, I admired everyone that said world peace, fix the environment, do this. I got to tell you, if I had a superpower, it'd be predicting winning lottery numbers and anticipating stock market trends. And I'm not embarrassed by that. <laughs> That's good. Well, yeah. And, and somebody asked me and, you know, I'd want to be able to, uh, you know, pick the horse in the race that's going to win, you know, all those types of things. So think of all the good I could do with that money. <laughs> Absolutely. Other than family, what is your most prized possession? Well, I consider my pets part of my family, so I'm going to eliminate them. I would say I have a 65 uh, white Mustang convertible. Wow. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Okay. Sounds good. So Lucille, thanks so much. Um, where can people reach out to you on social media if they have questions or just want to talk? Yeah. Uh, the best platform and I'm, I'm sort of a, an open accepting LinkedIn partner would be on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me under uh, Lucy DeHart um, or Lucille DeHart. And then also I have a, a website, mktmarketingservices.com. Um, you could find out a little bit more about my background, uh, send me an email, but. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, this was great. Uh, really some uh, good takeaways. I think everybody's going to uh, enjoy listening. Stay well. Nice to see you again and, and appreciate you joining me today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Lucille DeHart for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Lucille talked about what to do when you make a mistake. Do not panic, identify the scope and impact on the business, determine the possible resolutions, and most of all, take accountability. We all make mistakes. It's what you do after the mistake that really matters. Number two, the pre-meet. I've used this technique throughout my career as well for really important meetings. If you're presenting to senior management, identify who on the team can be helpful in running through the agenda and a high-level review of the content. This preparation work will help get everyone aligned on the messages to be delivered. And number three, measuring success. All too often, we embark on tasks without a clear understanding of how we're going to measure whether the work is successful or not. Part of why we avoid this could be the fact that measurement is tough to do. Even if it is, identify something, even non-numeric type things, so that everyone has some idea of what you're trying to achieve. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.